Hello and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. Mooney, in the past few episodes, we talked about the left in Latin America, we talked about the right in Europe, we talked about the power of Russia, all of these marking some really concerning trends. But today, I want to talk about my birthplace, Italy. Controversial, colorful, magical, it's always complicated. This country of almost 60 million never fails to surprise, but now it's surprised on the political positive because the remarkable news is that last December, The Economist just announced that it was going to give Italy the Country of the Year Award. So we're going to talk about that and how Italy, a country which has always been a bit ridiculed that its government that is so slow and a little unstable and changes all the time, suddenly deserved a great spotlight. And with us is Arturo Zampaglione, who for almost 20 years was the New York-based correspondent of Italy's major daily, La Repubblica. Peter, that was a surprising coronation from The Economist. But if there's one name that probably accounts for Italy's good report card, it's Mario Draghi. In the European leadership desert that Angela Merkel left behind, Prime Minister Draghi, former European Central Bank head, has managed to keep the country's economy growing, the vaccine calendar in check, and his popularity is strong both at home and abroad. He has a very good reputation around the world. And you would think that the best country prize was, of course, not super competitive, as I mentioned, but the track record is pretty good, especially in the management of the almost $250 billion recovery money granted by the European Central Bank. Of course, it's Italy and all is not rosy. Unemployment is about 10%. The business environment is complex and there are lingering structural fractures in the country, but most agree that Italy's recovery plan is ahead of even France and Germany. So that is a pretty good outcome. You know, Mooney, the more I I listen to you and I think about it, it's just so obvious how leadership makes a difference. And, you know, (laughs) we we pine for that in so many countries in the world. And it's been great to see Italy have such a leadership. But this Italian honeymoon that Mooney described so well almost came to an end in the last few weeks as the Chambers of Deputies held, as it does every seven years, a secret ballot to elect the next president. And Draghi himself was the leading contender, which would have caused him to step away from the prime minister's job, the proverbial getting kicked upstairs problem. And while politically powerful, the presidency of Italy is a largely ceremonial position. And Draghi is pretty circumspect about whether he actually wanted it or whether he didn't want the president's job. But what is clear is that most of the world and almost all Italians wanted him to stay right where he was because everybody feared a political transition that would end a relatively short but super stable area with lots of change. So it wasn't surprising that many from the financial markets to the Pope to the Americans to the European Union were super relieved after, you know, seven rounds of voting. It almost felt like a papal conclave, 80-year-old 
current president, Sergio Mattarella, was re-elected to keep his job, leaving Draghi at his post at prime minister, at least until next year's elections. Tutti contenti, as they say in Italy. And yes, the status quo in this case is reassuring, but nobody knows how long it's going to last. And a lot of factors were at play here. Mattarella also deserves credit as he stayed the course over seven years of political zigzagging from the left to the right to the populace. And it's unlikely that he's going to stay on for seven more years. But Italy's parties showed their colors and conflicts during this failed election of the presidency. And even Draghi's ruling coalitions has exposed a lot of deep internal differences. So things are going to get complicated in the next months leading to the general election next year. But some people say, I guess, that this will make Draghi a weaker prime minister. But others, and I'm sort of in that camp, think that while the party bosses are trying to make themselves pretty again, Draghi actually has an opportunity to do even more and deeper reforms than he already has. So I think the relief may be short-lived, Peter. Things are complicated and there's already some skepticism about how he comes out in front and why there are not any more leaders like Draghi in Italy. It's kind of a very weak bench. And we talk about leadership a lot in Altamar, and we've pointed to Draghi several times as a strong example of resilience in a country that is, understatement here, hard to govern. And even the skeptical Italians recognize his ability to hold steady, both politically and economically, in tough times. Bloomberg headlined recently, Draghi now buys time to fix Italy which I think is fitting, but is a Draghi one-man show insufficient for Italy after 2023? So speaking of men, we've only spoken of men, Thea will now talk about a little bit and the very few women in Italian politics. Hi, I'm Thea Ivanovich, and this is Thea's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So that's absolutely right, Muni. Italian politics is famously a boys' club, and in a country known for its appreciation of women in its art and its culture, a mere 28% of women hold ministerial positions, and women make up only 35% of all members of parliament. So party leadership is firmly in the hands of men. And when women are in politics, it's often in, you know, quote unquote, unimportant roles with no budget control, for example, or, you know, they're included for pinkwashing purposes or worse as objects for male pleasure. Silvio Berlusconi, Italy's longtime prime minister, was very famous for appointing models and actresses to his cabinet. And he was also famous for holding sex parties with underage girls. So unfortunately, this blatant sexism is a reflection of Italy's economy and society as a whole. According to the IMF, only 49% of the country's women are employed outside the home, costing Italy about 8% of its projected GDP every year. The problem has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. More than twice as many women lost their jobs in 2020 than men did. And the Catholic Church's stronghold on society is also resulting in the marginalization of women's rights. For example, even though abortion is free and legal, the procedure has become increasingly difficult to obtain for many women. Some 70% of Italian gynecologists are so-called conscientious objectors and decline to perform abortions out of personal convictions or to ingratiate themselves with heads of departments and clinics and hospitals, many of which are owned and run by the Catholic Church. Voters are getting tired of the status quo, and across the world we've seen women rising 
into strong and sustained political action. For example, Polish women have taken to the streets to defend their right to terminate a pregnancy in a safe and legal way. In Argentina recently, we also saw the pro-choice movement obtaining its first major victory. In Belarus, women protesters were at the forefront of a political revolution. If Italy's politicians want to have a future with young voters, they need to set the foundation for true female leadership. So as always, we want to hear from you and what you think. How important is female participation in politics, but also in society and the economy? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let us know. Thea, we have this and so much else to discuss with our guest, Arturo Zampaglione, who's an old family friend. And Arturo was the New York correspondent for one of Italy's major newspapers, if not the major newspaper, La Repubblica, for almost 20 years from New York City. And he continues to collaborate with La Repubblica as a columnist. Arturo studied in Rome, but also in Boston, where he has a master's in international business from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and he taught at New York University. He also edited the publication of the book called The Anti-Egalitarian Mutation, which is a fabulous title. I want to give him the award for one of the best titles I've heard in a long time. Arturo, it's such a pleasure to have you on Altamar. We have lots to discuss. Hi, Peter. Hi, Mooney. And uh, thanks very much for inviting me today. So, Arturo, let me begin by saying that I guess Italy has had a pretty good year politically and economically. The Economist picked Italy as the country of the year. The economy is growing faster than even France and Germany. The painful lockdowns of 2020 are now pretty good news stories about the COVID mitigation. And there are some opportunities in politics, which is never to be underestimated in Italy. Are you as optimistic as the headlines suggest we should be? Look, Peter, I just came back from Italy over this weekend, and I must tell you, the mood of the country is quickly improving. Of course, there is some COVID fatigue, and people are still getting infected, but in the hospitals, the situation appears under control, life is returning to pre-pandemic happiness, and everyone loves the new president. Sergio Mattarella, who is 80 years old, but was just re-elected for a seven-year term. And there is a sense, a general sense, that the country and the economy are moving in the right direction. And by the way, all the available data confirms this positive trend. And Mario Draghi has been, certainly the economist has credited him for a lot of successful reforms and maintaining stability. Do you see Draghi's role as having been so critical in the last 15 months or so? Yes, definitely so. I mean, first of all, so let's start from the, you know, the economic data. GDP grew in the, in the same year he was prime minister of a 6.5%. That's the fastest rate in 27 years and above all the expectation of many economists. For example, Fitch, the rating agency, was expecting a growth of the economy of just 6.3, and instead it went over that. And also for the next year, the forecast is good, 3.8 in 2022. So he, he has delivered. He is delivering. But this, of course, you, we must also think that Italy's role in, in Europe and in the world has been increasing during his term. 
So the, the general sense is that the choice of the economist as country of the year was a, a right choice. And this has also created a sort of a, a national pride that you can see in many things. And do you see Draghi as being able to continue a reformist agenda in the time he has left before the next election in 2023? Yes, let's remember that election will be in uh, political election in one year time. And so we'll have 12 months of a relative stability. The, the starting point is good. There are some risks, of course, both from the economy and uh, from a political point of view. And, and then there is the, the dangers linked to Ukraine and uh, the possible Russian in, invasion. We, we all know that is, Italy is very dependent on energy imports. Italy produces only 10% of the national gas we consume. Uh, we must buy the rest abroad, and especially from Russia. 43%, almost half of the Italian national gas consumed in the country comes from Russia. So it's, there is a danger of linked to the possible invasion. And then there is a risk in the hike of energy prices that are already affecting the Italian consumers, the Italian factories, and the inflation rate. All this could offer some new challenges to Mario Draghi, but the road is, uh, he has all the, the political strengths and the technical uh, know-how to go in the right direction. Do you think Draghi will weather all these storms? In the beginning, I mean, it's the honeymoon period without a doubt, even though he's been there for a while. The markets responded positively. The world responded with a sigh of relief. There are already tensions on the geopolitical sphere. What are some of the risks internally that you see happening in Italy in the near future? And, and we can divide them between political and economic. Yes, the economic risks, uh, I already mentioned some of them. They have to do with the international uh, outlook, with uh, the possible wars, etc. Uh, from a political point of view, there is, of course, still the stability of the Italian government. Throughout history, uh, Italy has not been a very stable country or at least it doesn't give the impression of being, it never gave the impression to be very stable. But uh, now what has happened is that the present Draghi administration has the support of all the political parties in Italy, except for the extreme right. So there is a, a big political front that supports him. Uh, we just had the elections for the president, And uh, as perhaps you know, and I was telling you before, Sergio Mattarella was re-elected. This gave a sense of continuity because he was president before and he remains president now. Mario Draghi was prime minister before and he remains prime minister now. But the election was a, a difficult moment in Italian politics not only because we have needed uh, eight ballots to get to the same result that we had before, but in, because in all this process, the political parties got very angry one to each other. And uh, uh, the consequences of this unsuccess of politics 
is affecting all of them. So there are divisions inside, and this brings to a double risk. Uh, the first one is that uh, politics will continue to be fragmented as usual. And second, going near the election, there could be some uh, tensions between parties, making Mario Draghi's job more difficult. And it's true that the ideal scenario played out recently, but of course there's elections next year for Draghi. Um, you've laid out a little bit of the political spectrum there. What are the likely scenarios for the 2023 elections? And then I have a second question, which is President Mattarella. You mentioned he was 80. He's on there for a seven-year term, I believe. What do you think is going to happen there? Uh, this last part of the question is the easiest one. Uh, Mattarella has a seven-year term in front of him, and he'll remain at the Quirinale, the presidential palace, which was before the palace of the popes. And uh, uh, he can remain there as long as he has the strength and the will. Let me remind you that he has a 70% approval rate, so he has no political problems for his own. It's much more difficult to predict what will happen in the next election for parliament scheduled for 2023. As in many other countries, the Italian political system has become much more fragmented. Once upon a time, there were two big parties, the centrist Christian Democratic Party and the Communist Party on the left. Not anymore. Now there are at least six major political forces, but none of them, according to the latest poll, will be able to get more than 20% of the popular vote. So this leaves us with a very fragmented political spectrum. Uh, now, uh, the biggest two or three parties are the, the Democratic Party, which is the, the leftist party, uh, the big leftist party in Italian politics uh, that has uh, chosen several prime ministers before. And it gets uh, now sort of something like 21, 22% of the, of the polls. Fratelli d'Italia, which is the extreme right uh, party, uh, populist party led by Giorgia Meloni, is on around 20% of the vote. And Lega, led by Matteo Salvini, has around 18%. Now, this tells us that no party could govern by itself, and every coalition would need some uh, big political compromise. And this is not impossible, of course, because we had uh, many of these compromises in the last three, four years of Italian politics. We had, uh, for example, two parties governing together, which were quite different. One was the Lega and the other one was uh, Cinque Stelle, an anti-establishment party that uh, was the real winner of the last election but has lost, in the meantime, a lot of political support. So this leaves us with a, again, with a fragmented scenario. And a lot will also depend from the kind of electoral system that will be used in the elections next year. Because uh, this is another issue. Uh, Italy has decided to reduce uh, the number of members of parliament and of senators. And, and this will oblige us to rethink the electoral law. It will be based like now on single uh, districts, or will it have a proportional 
approach like, for example, in Germany. It's still open to discussion. And these fragmented political parties must take a decision on this issue quickly. And it will not be easy. Artur, I wanted to uh, ask you a couple of economic questions next, but I, your analysis of the political parties was so good. It just leads me to ask, you know, it's funny how Draghi seems to have been this deus ex machina, this, this outside solution for now. But it's just amazing that there just seems to be a lack of a new regeneration of politicians, a new generation of politicians who can take the reins in Italy, people who have some greater credibility. I mean, is that, is that right? Are there, I mean, Giorgia Meloni is certainly a new face, and, but she's on the way right wing. Do you see anybody that you have some hope for as the elections approach? that isn't a face we haven't seen before? First of all, uh, we must say that, uh, unfortunately, Italy is a country of all people, and the political system is no exception. Italy, let's not forget it, has a negative population growth, no babies. And, for example, I just learned just a few days ago that the medium age of the Italian television viewer is in Italy 65, 65 year old, which which means that Italy is a country of all people, and uh, the uh, politics is no exception. Of course, we have Mario Draghi who's seventy four. We have um, Mattarella who's eighty. I just mentioned it. The electorate is sort of used to all the people. Of course, there, there have been exceptions to this in the in, in the past and also now. When Matteo Renzi, the former prime minister, became uh, prime minister in 2014, he was only 39 years old. And Luigi Di Maio, our current foreign minister, is 35. But of course, again, these are exceptions. Uh, to tell you the truth, no. Uh, Durant, uh, uh, except for Giorgia Meloni, Durant, many young people in the pipeline. So Italy seems really far behind other European countries in empowering women in political leadership. Why do you feel that women are so underrepresented? I mean, the most popular woman in politics right now is Giorgia Meloni, who's the leader of the right-wing party, ironically called Brothers of Italy. <laughs> yes, of course, you must remember that Brother of Italy is also the first two words of the Italian national hymn. So it has a nationalist feeling, uh, the name of the party. is not. I wouldn't say that it's a man's oriented uh, <laughs> name. But, I mean, it's true. You're, you're right. Uh, there are very few women in Italian politics, even uh, if uh, there has been an improvement over time. Let's not forget that until 1947, women were not allowed to vote. My grandmother, for example. My own grandmother casted her first ballot when she was 51 years old in 1947. And that year, only 5% of the women in the Italian parliament. Now are, the percentage is 35%, still much lower than the European average, but a problem for Italian politics and for Italian society. Arturo. As we look at Italy from the inside, we here, uh, outside of Italy, see it kind of as a 
very popular country. And we were talking earlier about how it was selected country of the year by The Economist, which was very interesting and controversial. And now you're talking about the role in the Russia conflict with Ukraine. Do you believe that in the absence of Angela Merkel, with elections coming up for Macron and with a um, higher standing in the European table, will Italy play in a more salient role in international politics? Yeah, definitely so. Italy has now an important say in European affairs. Of course, it has a lot to do with Mario Draghi. Uh, before becoming prime minister, uh, he has been for eight years president of the European Central Bank. In that role, uh, Super Mario, as he was nicknamed, got to know very well all the structure of the EU and the leaders of every single country. He has a personal friendship with Emmanuel Macron. When Draghi speaks about uh, the need for a European army or of a more flexible approach to budget deficits, uh, people listen in Brussels. Uh, when he calls Moscow, Putin picks up the phone, and the same does Xi Jinping in Beijing. So I would say that a lot of Italian uh, role in international affairs is linked to Mario Draghi's role in Italy now. Arturo, let me end with the question, which is, what is needed in the next few years in Italy in terms of reforms? If there's a list of reforms that Italy needs and changes that Italy needs, what's at the top of your list for Italy to continue thriving in the future? Yeah, before I talk about my personal list, I want to mention that there is a list of reforms that Italy has presented to the EU, to Brussels, in order to receive the huge post-COVID financing for the recovery. Uh, we are talking about $200 billion, which for a country like Italy is a lot of money. And this money will be given if there are deep reforms in some key sectors of Italian society starting with the justice system, with the procurement system, and job market. And Italy has promised to deliver on these issues. And a lot will be based on uh, how capable Mario Draghi will be to wake up the Italian bureaucracy, which is not known as the most efficient one, and to be able to give uh, all this. Now, for, uh, you asked me my personal uh, preference in terms of reform. You know, Italy has everything that is needs a little adjusting and a little updating. But uh, the justice system is crucial in my view. President Mattarella, as soon as he was re-elected, stressed this issue. Uh, we have a, a very bureaucratic uh, administration of the justice, and the, this needs to be changed if Italy wants to become a modern and efficient country. Arturo Zabaglione, we've run out of time. Thank you, Arturo, for joining us on Altamar today. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Peter, Dea, this is an uplifting view of Italy, and that's also almost unique because sometimes uh, Italy is associated with political chaos. 
However, I do believe it. it's a view that is based on a one-man show. And Thea, I want to prod you with a one-man show. But that most of the stability is or maybe a two-man show is now under the very temporary hands of a president and a prime minister. You know, Mooney, I'm going to jump in before, because I can already see that, that Thea is well-prodded to answer that. But Look, I, I would love it that other countries, including the United States, have a one-man show like that show. Because I do think that good leadership, people begin to get used to good leadership. People begin to identify the difference between good leadership and bad leadership. And when bad leadership comes back, they want good leadership again. And so this is, I think, one of the key things that a country like Italy is going to really be able to thrive from, from having had the example, even if it's for a short two and a half years. The bar is high, definitely. The bar becomes higher. I mean, I completely agree about your point about leadership, Peter, but why can't it be a woman leadership, right? I mean, I think uh, in Italy in particular, I think the sexism is, is so prevalent you know, all over, not just in politics, which we talked about, but also in society and in the economy. And I, I really think if politicians and political parties want to keep the support of young voters, they're going to need to introduce many more women in their political parties. So with that, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter. Don't forget to do that, which we send out bi-weekly. And you can have an analysis of global trends, including our podcast link. Thank you and see you next time.